We'll hear argument next to number 95-365. The spectators are admonished to remain silent until you get outside the courtroom. The court remains in session. We'll hear argument next to number 95-365, James Griffin Lane versus Federico Opinion. Mr. Smith, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The question in this case is whether Congress intended that federal agencies who discriminate against disabled people in violation of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act are to be subject to damages for those violations. It's undisputed in this case that, in fact, the government did violate Section 504. It's also undisputed that Petitioner Griff Lane was caused significant damages by that violation. Uh, in fact, the papers before the court contained the party's stipulation that his damages were some $75,000. I see the, the petitioner's name, uh, Mr. Smith, is James Griffin Lane. When you say Griff Lane, is that how you refer to him? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, that's the name I've always called him. Sorry. Um, the $75,000 to Mr. Lane uh, include his out-of-pocket expenses and his lost uh, earnings for the two years he was improperly excluded from the Merchant Marine Academy. Now, we understand that in deciding whether or not Mr. Lane is going to be entitled to these damages, we will have to meet the strict burden that this court's sovereign immunity cases have placed on us. We must show that, in fact, it was clear in the statute that Congress intended these damages to be made available. We believe it is clear in the statute. Mr. Smith, um, may I refer you to the statute, Section 505A2, um, dealing explicitly with remedies? There is a section, is there not, of the statute that deals with remedies? Yes, Your Honor. And it says the remedies set forth in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 shall be available to any person aggrieved under the statute. And the civil Title VI includes compensatory damages, I believe. Is that yes, right? Yes, Your Honor. That is correct. And then it goes on and it says... Any person aggrieved by any act or failure to act by any recipient of federal assistance or federal provider of such assistance. Now, um, who is a federal provider? Is the Department of Transportation a federal provider of assistance? The de yes, Your Honor, it is. Um, and we believe... If well, we, if it is, then does the statute cover it and you don't have to go through all this implication? Well, as we argued in our, in our reply brief, we believe even if you read 505A2 alone, mm -hmm. in isolation, because the Department of Transportation is a federal provider... How do we know he's a federal provider? It's under, under the operative section that was amended to include... Uh, any program or activity conducted by any executive agency, it didn't refer to it as a federal provider, did it? It, it did not, Your Honor. Um, and uh, as we've argued in our brief, we believe that Congress, when it amended 504 and also provided 
in 505A2 for the... Can you give me a, a hand here and use the, the USC uh, sections? I mean, maybe you work with the, with, with, with the enacted bill all the time, but I don't. Are you talking about section 794A? Is that what we're talking about? 794A, A2 right. would be the remedy section. That's right? correct. And the general liability section would be 794A, right? That's correct also, Your Honor. Um, I'm looking, Justice Scalia, at pages two and three of our brief, where all of these provisions are set out, um, and I will, I will use the USC site mm-hmm. um, uh, for clarity. We believe, Justice O'Connor, that because the Department of Transportation is a federal provider, in the sense that the government is using it in its brief. Is that there is, a definition anywhere? Of there is not a definition that I'm aware of, Your Honor, of federal provider anywhere in the statute. Um, if you were to treat federal provider there as simply an agency that extends funds to a non-federal uh, recipient, then the Department of Transportation is clearly a federal provider, as the regulations we've cited in our brief show. It provides funds in that sense for highways, railroads, airports. Indeed, every departmental agency in the federal government is a federal provider in that sense. Would you call uh, the Department of Transportation a federal provider with respect to the Merchant Marine Academy? No, Your Honor, we would not, um, because of this court's decision in uh, Paralyzed Veterans, which indicates that funds that are actually provided to an entity that the federal government manages itself, which is what DOT does here effectively for the Merchant Marine Academy, then the Merchant Marine Academy is not a recipient of federal financial assistance. But DOT would remain a federal provider for purpose of the question Justice O'Connor was asking. But our view is that you shouldn't read federal provider in that narrow sense here. We believe that what Congress intended at the time it adopted uh, 794AA2 was to provide a remedy for the new duty it had just imposed on the federal government in what is now 504A of the Rehabilitation Act. In 504A in 1978, Congress extended the application of 504 to federal agencies, or in this case, executive agencies. And at the same time, it amended 505A2, as Justice O'Connor said, to provide remedies. We think the explanation of the difference in wording that uh, the Ninth Circuit provided in Doe is correct. The amendment to 504 came from the House. The amendment to uh, 505A2 came from the Senate. And the conference report uh, didn't make the two exactly coterminous. But to read this as intending a difference in treatment between the two would mean that Congress imposed a new duty on the federal government, but then in the remedy section provided no remedy. And at the same time, the federal provider means something different. Mr. Smith, why is that so extraordinary under the Administrative Procedure Act, under 702, with its broad waiver of sovereign immunity for non-monetary relief? The the idea of sovereign immunity being waived as to relief other than monetary is hardly novel. Well, certainly, Your Honor, but I would suggest to you there's no suggestion anywhere in the statute or in the legislative history that Congress was assuming that the APA was going to apply to the situation precisely for the reason that we're here now. I'm not talking about the APA applying, but is it, am I not right that 702 
in its broad waiver of sovereign immunity is hardly limited to cases arising under the APA. I thought that at least there are several decisions that have held that that's an all-purpose waiver. I believe that is right, Your Honor. That that wouldn't change the contention that I'm trying to make. Well, it, it, would change, it, it, it would mean that, that there is always a suit under the APA to get the government to comply with obligations imposed upon the government by law. If, you re, if, if the government is acting, you have a suit to review the lawfulness of that government action. I believe that is right, Your Honor. Okay. So then the only question is, is there, in addition, provided by this statute, uh, a suit for money damages, which the APA does not provide? Does not provide, and our contention is what Congress was trying to do here was to equalize the remedies available for all entities covered by Section 504, including the federal government. And that is what it was doing in 505A2 or 29 U.S.C. 794A2. Well, it's, it's truly remarkable that with the sections coming right in or right in sequence, that different language is used in 505A2, 794A2, than uh, the, the section right before it. And you, you say, really, they mean the same thing. Our contention is that they mean the same thing, but our contention also is that if they don't mean the same thing, the federal provider is something narrower, that we are still entitled to damages in this case. I mean, it's quite clear, and we understand the government's position to agree with us here, that whatever federal provider may mean, there is a damage remedy available against it, which means that something more than what the APA provides is provided for in 505A2. Well, who's the federal provider in your, in your case? The federal provider in our case is within the meaning we've now been discussing it, Your Honor, is the Department of Transportation. But I thought a moment ago you, you said that it would, that would not be the federal provider with respect to the Merchant Marine Academy. That is right, Your Honor. Our view is that because 505A2 subjects, I mean, just the, the language is, the remedies in Title VI shall be available to any person aggrieved by any act or failure to act by a federal provider. In violation of Section 5, uh, in violation of 794, DOT is a federal provider. It has committed an act in violation of Section 504, 794. Well, what is that act? 504, the Rehabilitation Act. No, I mean, you say it's committed an act. DOT. Oh, sorry, it discriminated in violation of, of Section 504 against. Well, I thought the, the academy. Well, I thought the academy did that. Well, Your Honor, we of course brought our action against all three levels here. And because the Department of Transportation effectively manages the Merchant Marine Academy uh, through MARAD, which is another intervening entity, DOT is ultimately responsible, in our view, which is why we brought the action against the Secretary for the conduct here. Could the Secretary have ordered uh, the admission uh, or, the, or the continued uh, student status of, of your client? Oh, absolutely, Your Honor. The, the secretary could have reversed the decision of the Maritime Academy? Presumably so, Your Honor. We actually submitted our papers when we appealed the decision uh, of the Academy, both to MARAD and to the office of the secretary, and the resulting decision came from MARAD upholding his exclusion. Mr. Smith, the, the distinction that you're making, um, the... Um, You say that 502 
A2 provider covers the Department of Transportation because it provides. But in this particular case, it's, it's in its capacity as executive agency, not as provider. Under that reading would mean that a government agency that doesn't provide funds, that just has its own operation, would not be uh, responsible for money damages. And that's, that's a, an illogical way, I think, to, for Congress to act. Either they want the government agency as government agency with respect to people under its programs to be covered, or it doesn't. But a line between an agency that gives money and an agency that doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I agree with that, Your Honor. That's why our first argument is that, in fact, Congress intended a damage remedy to be available against the discriminator itself. When it's a federal agency, a damage remedy is available. When it's a recipient... And you don't get that from the word federal provider in 505A2. Where do you get that explicit waiver of damages, clear waiver? Well, we get it in part from 505A2, uh, Your Honor. Uh, we also get it from the uh, Equalization Act of 1986, where uh, Congress did two things. It abrogated the sovereign immunity of the state, and more important for our purposes, Congress made clear that it wanted the remedies available for Section 504 to be the same for all defendants under Section 504. That is, the remedies available against states were to be the same as the remedies available against all other entities, or to use the, the language of Section 2 of 42 U.S.C. 2000-7, the remedies should be the same for a violation in the suit, which is referring to a suit under Section 504, against any public or private entity other than a state. Mr. Smith, can, can, I, can I suggest a different reading of uh, 794A? A2, and you tell me why it would not make sense. Uh, it seems to me the phrase recipient of federal assistance bears a, a very fairly common meaning. There are federal assistance programs in which federal money is given to uh, organizations which in turn uh, act uh, to, to help those in need. And if such a person providing help to those in need discriminates in violation of the act, you would have a suit under A, A2. And then it goes on to say, or federal provider of such assistance. That would mean that if the federal agency, which provides money to the private agency, which makes the direct assistance, discriminates in its provision of funds by denying funds for handicapped facilities, for example, you would, you would have a claim against for damages against that federal agency. If you interpreted it that way, it would provide a cause of action for money damages only with respect to the money that the assistance program would have provided. That's what the money damages would be. It would make perfect sense. Why, it, why isn't that the way to read it? It isn't clear in that case, Your Honor, what the duty then is in 504A, 794A, that the federal provider, as you're now defining it, was violating. The, the federal provider cannot deny funds to an otherwise eligible private provider of, of assistance to, to the public on the ground that those funds are going to be spent on handicapped facilities. If that if it's denied that you know this, this is an extravagant expenditure, building this ramp for wheelchairs or whatnot is an extravagant expenditure, and we will not provide funds for that, you would have a cause of action against the federal provider to get those funds. 
If in that event, Your Honor, Congress has imposed a duty on executive agencies not to discriminate, yes. but it's not provided the same damage remedy for that kind of discrimination right. as the kind you just now described. Right, because it, it knew that, you know, damages can get out of hand, especially against a deep pocket like the government. And the only kind of damage actions we're going to allow are damage actions for the amount of money that would have been provided under the assistance program. Even if that reading is, is a plausible one, Your Honor, and I think it is not because of the anomaly of there being two kinds of obvious discrimination, and for one, you're suggesting a remedy, damage remedy is provided, and for the other, not, I would still contend to you that any doubt about Congress's intention on the point you've just raised is resolved, again, by the Equalization of Remedies Act. But the, the, that equalization of remedy seems to me to be devoted primarily to making the states liable in response to our Atascadero decision. I agree with that, Your Honor, that that was the impetus uh, for the 1986 Act. But Section 2 of that Act, as we read it, and we don't understand the government to deny this, Section 2 of that Act by its own terms, equalizes the remedies between the states, which we know includes damages, with all other defendants who are subject to a, a suit for a violation under all of the statutes named in Section 1. Well, but what, it, what it's saying, what Section 2 is saying, is that you're going to have uh, the remedies available against the state that are available uh, against other entities. And you draw that from that kind of a negative inference? That, that, that since damages are available against the state, therefore there are these, they must be available against these other public entities too? Well, not a negative inference, Your Honor. I would say it's a positive one because the language of Section 2 speaks of a suit against a state for a violation of a statute referred to in Section 1, which includes Section 504 that we've been talking about. And it equalizes the remedies between a state on the one hand and all other entities covered by Section 504 yeah, on the other But you're, you're reading the converse of it. You're saying that all the remedy against all public entities is the same as that available against the states. But that's not what it says. It, it says the, other, the, the, the converse. Well, Your Honor, if I would say that any public entity here includes the federal government. But your reading makes... Uh, public and private superfluous. It didn't say any other entity whatsoever. It says any public or private entity, thereby indicating to me that there may be a distinction between uh, the remedies available against a private entity on one hand and a public entity on the other. Well, if that... So, 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 so the, uh, the, the state equalization clause wants to pick, them, pick both of them up, and that's why it has public and private in it, knowing that there may be a difference. Well, maybe public doesn't refer to the United States. Yeah. You know, it refers to the United States. It could refer to municipalities. Well, Your Honor, the reason I think it has to refer to the United States is because the United States is certainly an entity that is covered by Section 504, which is listed in Paragraph 1. But even, even if it does, I don't know why it follows from your, anything further follows from your argument than if the federal government does not have to provide a general damages remedy, then by virtue of this particular provision, the state wouldn't have to provide one. I mean, it, 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 you, you seem to say because a state has to provide one based on some independent ground that the feds do too. Uh, but it seems to me that on, on, on your reading of two, 
uh, you can't go any further than saying, if this were the basis for subjecting the states to damages, then the states would not be subjected to a general damage remedy because the national government is not. Let me try to respond, Your Honor. The states are unquestionably subject to a damage remedy under the language of this provision, under this court's decision in Franklin. Mm -hmm. And I would urge that since the states are subject to a damage remedy, and since the purpose of this provision was to equalize that remedy with the remedies available against any public or private entity other than a state that is subject to suit under Section 504, necessarily public entity in that phrase has to include the federal government. I, I'm assuming that it does, but the, what you refer to as being equalization, as I understand the statute means, that the states cannot provide less than the other entities to whom they are compared. It does not follow from that that if the state, by virtue of one comparison, has to provide a damage remedy, that another public entity, i.e. the United States, must do the same thing. It just doesn't follow. Well, if I follow you, Your Honor, that would mean that we would have differing remedies, as Justice Kennedy was suggesting, uh, that the public and private entity may be subject to. But if that were the case, it's difficult for me to see how we are to choose between them with regard to what remedies the state is going to be Why isn't it just to? saying you're entitled to the best you, remedy there is? It's a private entity, just as yeah. though public wasn't there. It's public or. So if, a, if there would be this remedy against a private entity, it would be against the state. But in your interpretation, it seems to me strange for this reason, uh, Mr. Smith. Here is a clear, explicit waiver by the federal government of the state's 11th Amendment immunity. If it had waiver of federal sovereign immunity in mind, the most logical thing to do would not be to put it in this reverse way that you suggest, but to say, and there shall be no federal immunity. Well, the answer to that, Your Honor, is, as, as uh, the Chief Justice pointed out, the purpose of this provision was to respond to Atascadero. Atascadero was premised in part on the fact that nowhere in Section 504 were states named at all as being subject to the Act. In the 1978 Wouldn't amendment... Would it be though, even if, even if the trigger is a case that's dealing with state immunity, for Congress, filled with lawyers, to think, well, we know the feds are also immune... While we're dealing with governmental immunity, we should take care of both. Well, th they might have, Your Honor, and of course, I wish they had, or I wouldn't be here now. But from our position, Congress didn't do that in the 86 equalization remedies because it thought it didn't need to. It had already subjected federal agencies to suit in the 1978 amendments. And the language of 504 that did that, it's been well established by Canon and other cases, did in fact create a private cause of action against every entity that's named in the language of the statute. So sovereign immunity had already been waived for the federal government at the time of the 1986 Equalization Act. Your argument is that this, this language reflects the understanding by Congress that all public and private entities were liable for, for money damages. I think that's what your argument is. Not that it created liability for money damages, but that that language there, suit against any, in the suit against any public or private entity other than a state, it, it displays a, uh, uh, an acknowledgement by the Congress that passed that, that all public and private entities were similarly suable. 
It's not a trick question. This no, no, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking before I answer it, Your Honor. Um, I think the answer is yes, because Congress wanted to treat all of them equally, and any public or private entity, as that phrase is used there, refers to all of the covered entities under Section 504, which includes the federal government. I'll reserve it. If I can ask you one more thing. Is Certainly. your case helped at all by the fact that uh, it's, it's recognized, I, I think it's recognized, uh, that back pay uh, is permissible in a suit uh, against the government? Does that help your case? Or do we think of back pay as being an equitable remedy? Well, we think it's helped, Your Honor, because of the overall implausibility of the proposition that uh, Congress would have provided everything that it did here, uh, which is to say it, it provided uh, that the federal government would be subject to the action, that attorney's fees would be available, that injunctive relief would be available, well, I guess that back pay would be available, but not damages. Is the government right in saying, or at least in implying, that back pay is simply an equitable remedy? Well, I think not, Your Honor, uh, because the court dealt with that uh, in the Franklin case, uh, that very distinction that was being drawn and said the effect of the ruling there was to make the states liable to pay money damages, even where it was called equitable relief in the form of back pay. Very well, Mr. Smith. Uh, Ms. Brinkman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Rehabilitation Act does not contain the waiver the petitioner seeks. The Act is silent regarding the remedies available against the federal government for violation of Section 504. What about the section that appears to make a federal provider liable? Um, Your Honor, for the um, several reasons I think that members of the Court were um, suggesting, we um, interpret that not to extend to federal executive agencies, um, programs or activities conducted by federal executive agencies under um, Section 794. First of all, the word such. Well, you agree that Congress did waive sovereign immunity uh, for purposes of money damages insofar as the money is the assistance is provided by a federal provider? We, no, we do not agree that damages are necessarily available against a federal funder. Damages would be available, but whether no court has held that you can get damages against the federal agency that's providing funds. As we explain in our brief, in fact, the courts are not even in agreement on whether or not there's an implied cause of action for a federal funding agency. The courts have, and this court did not resolve that issue in canon. However, we do believe that there would be a remedy against the federal fund provider in that situation, um, either as for injunctive relief. Um, certainly the APA would provide that background. Well, it does say the remedies set forth in Title VI are available against the federal provider, yes. doesn't it? Yes, and Title VI remedies against federal providers, Your Honor, include things um, such as remedies for the fund recipient when the fund recipient is challenging the cutoff of funds or action by the federal fund provider. There are lots of remedies under Title VI, but um, we don't concede that they're even in that situation, which I think the court realizes is very different than the situation before it now. But in that situation... Um, well, why would Congress want to waive sovereign immunity if the federal government is a federal provider of assistance, but not 
uh, if it does it directly as an executive agency. That is kind of odd, isn't it? We think what um, Congress is trying to do in um, subsection A2, Your Honor, was make Section 504 like Title VI and Title IX. There's this mechanism for providing funds to agencies and states, and what remedies are available under that or under Title VI, um, Title VI 2000-D1, which sets up, for example, a recipient of federal funds has a right to a hearing and some due process before those funds could be cut off. Um, we think that the structure of the language really reinforces our interpretation. We would focus first on the word such in that subsection, too. I think as Justice Scalia was pointing out, federal provider of such assistance, we believe, refers back to the earlier clause talking about the um, federal assistance. Um, we would also point out, as the Chief Justice um, pointed out, that contrast between the language with subsection A1 where Title VII remedies were incorporated for employment discrimination against the federal um, government. In that section, A1 is written broadly that those remedies are available for any complaint under Section 791. And certainly if Congress's intent had been as petitioner states, that would have been the language they used in two for any complaint under sec Section 794. Ms. Brinkman, I, I still don't understand why you exclude damage remedies against the federal provider. Because, it's because you say no damages are obtainable against a federal provider under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act? Is I, that I think the question would be, Your Honor, the way to analyze it is to see what remedies are available under Title VI. And I think calling it damages is what makes me hesitate. I think it would be a question, for example, under Bowen versus Massachusetts, whether or not there could be some monetary relief, in, perhaps as an injunctive, requiring the agency either to provide funds or not provide funds, but it's not a damages remedy. So it's not saying uh, 794AA2, in your view, does not say that money damages are available. It says that money damages are available here where they are available under Title VI, which is not always. That's right, Your Honor. In your view. But even if we took... Perhaps they wouldn't include pain and suffering or something like that. Perhaps. I think a really um, significant feature of uh, the act, Your Honor, that, that you um, raise in my mind when you point that out is the express waiver for compensatory damages um, that Congress enacted in 1991 for Section 501. In the Civil Rights Act of 1991, Congress made very clear that it was waiving damages, um, sovereign immunity for compensatory damages for claims under Section 501. And it puts significant limitations on that waiver. First of all, it's limited to intentional um, discrimination or in the um, case of a, a 501, a Rehabilitation Act claim, also the failure to reasonably accommodate. The text of this is on pages um, 5A through 7A of our brief. That's the 1991 Civil um, Rights Act. Well, in addition is, to the, is the Department of Transportation a federal provider? of assistance? We don't believe so under the broad definition of that subsection A2. It certainly provides assistance to um, various um, programs and activities, but under A2, we submit that that only refers to pre federal providers of the assistance to the recipient. And again, we would contrast that to um, the language in A1. And I'd also remind the Court, I think as Justice Ginsburg was pointing out, there is the ADA waiver as a background to this. And I think it's... Um, is that the source of your concession? I think you, you are not disputing that there is relief, and it's injunctive, back pay, and attorney's fees. Yes. Where does the waiver of the sovereign's immunity 
as to those come from? Your Honor, I, I don't think it's necessarily something the court needs to resolve in this case. In Cannon, Derone, um, Alexander versus Choate, the court has just assumed that there were um, causes of um, action um, implied. We would certainly say that there's no doubt that there's one under the Administrative Procedure Act. And the amendment to the Administrative Procedure Act that made clear that waiver for non-monetary damages was enacted in 1976, just shortly before this 1978 amendment. So that cover back pay? The APA wouldn't cover back pay, would it? The a- um, no. Non-monetary. It is. Actually, Your Honor, in Derone, the way the court interpreted the availability of back pay was as an equitable remedy, um, because that's the way it had been interpreted under Title VII. But that's okay. not the, the waiver that's contained in 702. It says the word is non-monetary. Non-monetary. Yes. Not include back pay. So you still have to explain where, where, you, where you get a cause of action against the government for back pay. And it's... It doesn't satisfy me to say we don't have to worry about that in, in, in this case, because I, for one, think that where there has been a general grant of, of suit against the United States, I don't think we have to further insist that there be a specific grant of suit for money damages. I think if there's a general grant of suit against the United States, I would normally think it's suit for all purposes that suit lies. Well, Your Honor, there are several opinions of this court that I think I'm hold to the contrary. For example, Library of Congress versus Shaw. That was a discrete item. That was interest, which yes. traditionally had been treated as separate, requiring a separate immunity waiver. And But while you're dealing with back pay, attorney's fees also is monetary relief against the government. So the source of those two... Um, which you can see. We would point to the attorney's fees as the most easily resolved, Your Honor, on, on page under 794AB. It's an express waiver of um, attorney's fees um, um, uh, by a uh, prevailing party. Um, we would also point out under the APA. 794AB. B. Yes. yes. There's also, of course, a waiver under the Administrative Procedures Act under the um, Equal Access to Justice Act. Going to the point about um, the waiver for um, Money damages. I would also point out, um, Your Honor, in addition to Library of Congress versus Shaw, there's the court's opinion in um, Lehman versus Nexian about the um, jury trial right under the ADA. And again, that was a situation in which the statute talked about the federal government in the same terms as private, um, that they would be liable for legal and equitable remedies. But as in Shaw, where it was the same language, the United States would be responsible as all other parties. The court has repeatedly emphasized, however, that the aspects of the sovereign immunity waiver has to be expressed. And although the court had implied the um, right to a jury trial for private defendants in an earlier case, um, Laura Lard, the court did not imply that against the federal government in Lehman. And also we think that um, Shaw is a you know, statutory issue concerning interest, but we think that the thrust of that court also supports us um, Brings, here. <coughs> may I call your attention or ask you a question about the 1986 statute? Mm-hmm. In your view, is the Secretary of Transportation and or the um, Merchant Marine Academy a public entity other than a state within the meaning of that statute? My first answer, it doesn't matter, but I'll answer directly and then explain why. Looking at the history of that provision, Your Honor, we believe that the intent was not to include federal executive agencies of the federal government. Yes, because the statutes that are referred to in A1 of that are all federal funding um, provisions. And 
The other... Your, your answer is not consistent with the plain meaning of any public entity. And your you, Honor... You have to look at legislative history and you figure they didn't mean to include uh, federal agencies. We acknowledge that, Your Honor. And if the plain language has to be interpreted to include the federal government, we don't believe that that makes any difference, as members of the Court were pointing out. That simply means that in an action against a state, the plaintiff gets the same remedies that are available in actions against a private entity or a public entity. Correct. And it's not quite clear that Congress intended there to be a damage remedy against states. And therefore, must it not have made the assumption, just as Scalia described a little earlier, they must therefore have assumed, if public entity includes the Merchant Marine Academy, that such a remedy was available against the Merchant Marine Academy. No, we would say that there were um, damage remedies available against private entities that were receiving federal financial assistance. Well, but no, here's, here's the problem, Ms. Brinkman. If we, adopt, uh, if we adopt the petitioner's view, we will have solved the, uh, con- the, the, the problem that we took this case for and will not have created another problem. If we take your view, we're going to have to have another lawsuit as to the meaning of 2000 d 72 because uh, as he interprets the law, uh, all public and private entities can get money damages. All public and private entities, uh, suits against all public and private entities will give money damages. And I just it's don't easy to apply uh, A2. Now, if we take your view, there's at least some public entity that you can't get money damages against. And, and what, what do you do then under 2000D7A2? I look at the word or, Your Honor, private or public or private entity. Yeah. doesn't mean that you only get the overlap, everything that um, you can get in you know, both of those against a public or private. It's that against a state, you can get any remedy that you can get against any private entity or against any public entity. And you can get damages against private entities or, as um, uh, was pointed out earlier, municipalities. Just to the same extent as such remedies are available for such a violation in the suit against any public or private right. entity. But I, I think the problem your suggestion would arise if it said public and private, but it says public or private. It's simply well, Which one of the two do you pick? Do you pick the one that gives you the, the lesser damages or the one that gives you more? It's I think disjunctive, but you still have to decide which, which one of the two disjunctive ones you select. You, right. you select the lesser or the greater. I think the greater, Your Honor, to the extent of that. Well, I'll have a lawsuit about that, I suppose. Well, Your Honor, I don't think that that um, is the um, uh, well, necessary interpretation for purposes here. And under the court's authority for the explicit uh, um, nature of a waiver, we would again contrast to this, the explicit waiver p- for compensatory damages for employment Ms. Ms. discrimination. Uh, supposing stat- Congress just originally, without having any passed a statute saying that all public entities shall be liable for damages if they violate the Handicapped Act. Now, would you think that would include the United States? Yes, I think it probably would, Your Honor. Uh, so you would think a, a generic term like all public entities would be a sufficient waiver uh, for the, to include the United States? Uh, it, it may well be. The problem is, Your Honor, in A2, it doesn't say anything about damages. Well, I would, ordinarily, I would think that our cases would not support for what you say in your answer. Yeah, I, it's simply a referring to mm-hmm. where you could be talking about local governments, state governments, that to, to make the United States liable, it requires something more specific than public entities. I, I agree with you, Your Honor. I do hesitate to say something that generic. The problem is the court has said that it's not, there, there isn't some specific formula for um, stating the waiver of sovereign immunity against the federal government. And if all the um, circumstances were that that's what Congress intended, but I would think there would have to be some indicia of intent that they meant that. What if you said all entities? 
All entities, would that suffice? No, Your Honor. I think there would have to be something clearer than because that. Because there are so many entities in the world. I think it's because of the courts. Because coming. all public entities, it does suffice. There are a whole lot of public entities in the world, too. But I think the court has made clear that for the federal government, normal presumptions that you might might arise from words like use of legal remedies in Lehman or um, it's, um, to be responsible to the same extent for reasonable attorney's fees as private parties in Shaw, those don't mean the same thing against the federal government unless Congress expressly makes that clear. First, and if you can go back to the back pay, because I don't think I got it fully, why is the government responsible for back pay? The um, court in Derone addressed the issue, Your Honor, of whether under 504 an employment discrimination um, suit could be brought against recipients of federal funds. For employment discrimination cases against the federal government as employer, that comes under Section 501. 501 incorporates all of Title VII's remedies. So the entitlement to back pay arises out of the entitlement to back pay under Title VII. And I should also point out that um, when Congress amended Title VII and 501 to provide for compensatory damages with the restrictions I keep trying to get back to, um, the court, I mean, Congress also specified, and this is on page 7A, this is under the um, 1991 Civil Rights Act, there's a provision where it explains that although they're waiving um, sovereign immunity for compensatory damages for Title VII and 501 and the ADA. Compensatory damages awarded under the section shall not include back pay, interest on back pay, or any other type of relief authorized under Section 706G of the Civil Rights Act of 64. That's where we believe the entitlement. Do I understand that there was a back pay element in the $75,000? No, Your Honor. This isn't an employment um, situation. May I ask you another another question about the 1986 statute? Uh Forgetting the plain language for a minute, just looking at broadly the provision. It's, it's your view that Congress deliberately wanted to overcome a constitutional objection to suits against states and impose the states to damage liability, but yet retain its own sovereign immunity. That's what you think Congress was realistically trying to do. Yes. You think that's probable? Um, I do, Your Honor. I think that um, the matters of the federal fisc are something that Congress addresses, and Congress has apparently felt very... Not concerned about state fisks? Apparently not, Your Honor. I think... Mr. One thing when, did, when did the states become... Liable under Title VII? Under Title VII. Was it before? 1972, according to And when did the federal government agencies become? I think it was a couple years after that, Your Honor. So it was not so unusual to impose an obligation on the states and still keep the feds free. I would also point out that I think Congress repeatedly has now felt comfortable to waive um, immunity against money damage for employment context. Those are situations in which it's familiar with what the damages are available. Those are known. Whereas discrimination and um, problems that arise in um, activities or programs conducted by federal agencies could have raise a whole host of questions that Congress may not have wanted to bite that much off at that time. I want to just pursue uh, Justice Stevens' point. Have you been able to think of any reason that Congress would have wanted to say, we will pay, all private people pay money damages. States, I guess, by and large do. We'll pay money damages, too, for any one of the $491 trillion worth of government programs. But we won't pay money damages in whatever's left over in the federal government, which probably isn't much. I mean, uh, what was the theory of such a thing? Is there, is there a word that suggests either there's a theory to that, or is there a word that suggests that anybody in Congress even thought about it for more than a second or two? I don't. Or at all. Right. 
I don't think they necessarily thought about it. One point, though, that I'd like to emphasize, Your Honor, is by including federal executive agencies' activities and programs under Section 504, Congress went further than it did in Title I'm not saying whether what they did was good or bad. I'm simply saying if you have a distinction in terms of sovereign immunity that seems totally irrational, that we can't even think of a reason for, Your Honor, you also have language that permits the award. Why isn't that good enough? I guess what I'm, I'm trying to address that, Your Honor, by pointing out that one thing Congress did under Section 504 was for the um, first time, to my knowledge, bring programs and activities conducted by federal agencies under this type of prohibition. They're not covered by Title VI and Title IX. That may appear irrational also. On the other hand, Congress may have wanted to be more protective of um, the uh, discrimination against uh, people with disabilities because of a lower constitutional standard that would be applied to them. So Congress decided to take that step and be more protective for that class, but did not take the additional one of opening up a whole class of unknown damages in Ms. all Franklin, um, federal programs. I hate to bring you back to, to, to back pay, but I didn't understand your explanation. As I recall, when you got done, it boiled down to Section 706 of the Civil Rights Act of 64, that that's where. That's right. But but 794A, A1, or what you're referring to is 504, and I wish you'd refer to the code section. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, does, not, does not incorporate Section 706. It incorporates Section... Section 717, including the applications of 77, is it 706F yes. through K? Yes, 706G is where 706G. it comes from. 706G. And that's on page, if you look at 7A, on page 7A of our brief, Your Honor, it's um, the, la- the very bottom of the page. That is um, section 1981AB2. It's from the 1991 Civil Rights Act, and that explains why the new waiver in 1991 in employment cases for compensatory damages doesn't have to include back pay because back pay is already yeah. there. Okay, that would that would. Okay. Um, I just wanted to go back for one more point to emphasize the restrictions that Congress placed on the waiver for um, employment discrimination cases. In the 1991 amendments, Congress um, made clear that it was only for intentional cases in employment or for failure to reasonably accommodate. There, um, federal sovereign immunity is not waived for punitive damages, no. and there are also um, actual statutory caps set on the amount that um, can be recovered under that waiver, depending on the number of employees that employees Is, is the reason for the exclusion of back pay uh, in the 91 Act, the fact that it's already included? Uh, yes. Yes. Ms. Franklin, may I go back to what is probably a simple point about the 86 Act? Justice Scalia asked you the question, referring to subsection 2, uh, which refers uh, to, to remedies uh, against any public or private entity. And he said, uh, how do we know that Congress didn't mean to restrict the remedy to the entity that gets that is least liable as opposed to expanding the remedy by reference to the entity that is most liable? Is it your answer? We know it preferred the expansive interpretation because it was a post-Atascadero case and the whole point of the object of the legislation was simply to expand liability. It was your, your, your answer, in effect, is a congressional intent answer. Is that it? We think that's right, Your Honor. Without the congressional intent, there wouldn't be an answer in the text? I think the plain interpretation of that sentence would be that in it, um, are available such a violation in a suit against any public or private entity. I think you are in your action against the state. You say, what remedies do I get? And you get to go look at any suit against any public or private entity, and whatever you, they get in that case, you get. 
So I think it would still be the more expansive definition, even without any congressional Logically, you could say, well, I'm not subject to that remedy because somebody else is not. I mean, logically, you could do either one. You've got to go on intent, I suppose. Or maybe you've got to go perhaps on on a generalized practice that you don't enact statutes like this in order to limit liability just as a general rule that that just isn't the structure that you would employ for that purpose i think that would be further support for our interpretation i'd also point out regardless of that your honor this is clearly not the not kind of the language that waves the federal government's um sovereign immunity against damages well it would but, have been a but that in effect that just going back to to justice Breyer's point on that i suppose your ultimate answer on that is it may be as illogical as the devil, but the fact is, if you're going to be starchy about requiring waivers of federal sovereign immunity, illogicality is not enough to do it. I mean, is that, would, does the government fall back on that position? If, if Frankly, Your Honor, I don't think we need to. I mean, we would. But if, if, we if, you think, if we think you do, is mm-hmm. that the government's position? I think so. Another thing I think that the court should focus on about the development of law that it, it was the, the backdrop behind these statutes the um, remedies for damages was not clear until the Franklin Court, the Franklin opinion from this court in 1992. So even at the time that this 1986 um, amendment was passed, it was not at all clear that there were damages necessarily available against all defendants. There were lower courts that had held that. But those cases did not involve federal executive agencies because they're not covered by Title VI and Title IX. So those cases did not address the issue that's before the court here of federal sovereign immunity. And that's really a critical distinction between the statutes that often is not addressed in um, opinions by courts because it just wasn't an issue. In fact, um, I think that that's a a significant factor when you look through the history of the different times that that when these um, other provisions were enacted, you can see the development of the law did not extend at that time to damages against Entities, other in some lower courts have been developed, but it did not extend to a waiver of sovereign immunity. In fact, one of the lower courts' opinions, minor, that the petitioners cite, um, recognized this was pre-Atascadero that um, although there would be uh, implied cause of action for damages against private entities, it could not operate against the state because there hadn't been a waiver of sovereign immunity. Ms. Brinkman, would you explain once more what the government? Uh, is willing to concede 794AA2 does allow by way of monetary damages? It allows act, um, remedies that are available under Title VI. And this court has um, never directly addressed whether a federal provider is subject to a direct suit under that provision. It's certainly subject to suit under the APA, and it's also subject to all the remedies and procedures set forth in Title VI. What do you mean by a federal provider? You mean a grant-making agency? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. And um, the recipient, if um, it's told that the federal provider believes that the recipient is discriminating and funds are going to be cut off, there's all this procedural due process. And that recipient would be a person aggrieved by an act of the federal provider and could invoke that provision. And Congress was really trying to say, we're going to treat Section 504 for the federal fund recipients the same way we do Title VI and Title IX. But it did not all of a sudden try and adapt that provision to federal executive agency programs, which were never covered under Title VI or Title IX for that matter. If there's nothing further, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Uh, Mr. Smith, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. First of all, Your Honor, I think it's important for the court to construe all of these provisions together and decide whether or not the reading the government is offering is a plausible one and whether the structure as a whole that the government is asking you to adopt is a logical one. 
because if it is not, the court should not attribute an illogical, non-plausible intent to the Congress. And the, the reading that the government is offering you here is that Congress intended that all recipients of federal financial assistance be subject to damages, that states be subject to damages. Congress expressly abrogated the state's sovereign immunity for that purpose, that the federal government be liable for damages when it comes to employment discrimination on the basis of disability, that the federal government be liable in some way when it's a federal provider, although the government wants to narrowly contain that, and it has no explanation for why damages wouldn't be available under the plain meaning of AA2 in that circumstance. But yet, it urges the court to conclude that in this one area, direct discrimination by executive agencies, the Congress set out to withhold one kind of relief only, money damages. It provided for injunctive relief, it provided for back pay, it provided for attorney's fees, but the Congress set out to withhold one kind of relief, money damages. I submit to you that's an implausible reading of this statute. Well, it, it, except that it seems to me that it, it, it simply poses two opposing canons of interpretation. One is to find the most systematic way of construing the whole statute. Another uh, is to preserve the government's immunity uh, absent the satisfaction of a very high standard of waiver. And, and I think you're, what your argument does say, it says to us is, all right, which are you going to prefer, uh, uh, systematic logic uh, or, or, or the importance of sovereign immunity? Well, I, I'm not asking you to choose, because, Your Honor, because I think we serve both. I think this Court's cases make clear that while um, the, the waiver of sovereign immunity has to be clear, the Court will not deny damage relief in a case like this where the reading is an implausible one. What about Ms. Brinkman's argument that when Congress did waive immunity in 501, it forgated it? It was not just that we waive immunity, but they... I think that, I think the 501 uh, provision actually supports us, Your Honor. That was an entirely different section that was not construed to provide a private cause of action until 1978, unlike 504. And in 1978, Congress set out two different kinds of remedies, Title VII for the 501 section uh, and uh, Title VI for the 504 section. Damages are available under Title VI. They are not available under Title VII, and as a consequence, Congress had to amend the statute in 1991 to make damages available for the first time and thereby equalize the remedies against the federal government when it discriminates on the basis of disability. So I think the 501 uh, circumstance helps our view that Congress surely did not intend to carve out this one area and withhold relief. Let me speak to the public entity point for just a moment. I understand the government's argument to me that the federal government is not a public entity within the meaning of 2000 and D-72 because the only statutes being... Thank you, Mr. Thank Smith. You. The case is submitted.